This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Fifteen years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am. Not a hundred percent, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello, my beloved murder fam, and welcome back to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and this is Serial Saturday, where every Saturday we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Robert Lee Yates. Now, I kind of briefly covered him on last Saturday's podcast where we did the same time serials, but he was actually one of the only ones that I didn't have a podcast on all by himself, so I thought I might cover him this time. Robert Lee Yates was born on May 27th, 1952 in Spokane, Washington. So let's get into some history for that time. In 1952, the United States, as well as the United Kingdom, began testing bombs. The U.S. tested the first hydrogen bomb at the Marshall Islands in the Pacific Ocean, which, by the way, Edmund Kemper's father took part in. Yes, my friends, he was there. He actually said dealing with those bombs was easier than dealing with Edmund's mother. Now the thermonuclear bomb, codenamed Mike, was dropped on an island as part of Operation Ivy. The island was completely destroyed by the blast. Wildlife and vegetation on the surrounding islands was also destroyed. This success accelerated the nuclear arms race during the Cold War. As far as the UK, they tested their first atomic bomb in Australia. This proved the nation to be the world's third nuclear power and took place at the Montebello Islands. Also in the United States, the polio epidemic killed 3,300 people in 1952. Polio, as we all know, is an acute viral infectious disease that is spread from person to person, and it leaves many victims, including children and adults, paralyzed. But a vaccine was on the horizon. The U.S. Supreme Court upheld a New York state law stating communist teachers are banned from teaching in public schools. 
and vice presidential candidate Richard M. Nixon defended himself on television over allegations of a secret cash fund. Elizabeth II became the Queen of England and the United Kingdom after the death of her father, King George VI, on February 6th. Elizabeth was just 27 years old and had been traveling in Kenya with her husband, Prince Philip, at the time. She still reigns today. But really, 1952 had many good and positive things happen. For instance, the popular Mr. Potato Head toy debuted in May. The toy we all know and love consisted of little plastic pieces that made goofy faces and body postures that was actually meant to also be placed on real vegetables, which I didn't actually know. The iconic musical film, Singin' in the Rain, premiered at Radio City Music Hall in New York City. The English version of Anne Frank's The Diary of a Young Girl was published this year. And the Summer Olympics began in Helsinki, Finland during July. A total of 69 countries participated in the Games, with the Soviet Union and Israel doing so for the first time. There were 149 total events, with 4,955 athletes competing in them. The Winter Olympic Games were held in Oslo, Norway. India held its first general elections. Puerto Rico became a self-governing commonwealth of the United States. And the Kentucky Fried Chicken franchise that John Wayne Gacy loved so much opened this year. So, that's the environment that Robert was born into. Now, Robert's parents were Robert Yates Sr. and Anna Mae Yates. His paternal grandparents were John and Novella Yates, and they were farmers who had 10 children, including Robert Yates Sr. Novella apparently woke up in the morning, one morning. She walked out to the woodshed. She got an axe, walked back into the house, and hit John, who was sleeping, in the head four times in October of 1945. He was rushed to the hospital, but he died six days later. She had been barefooted and there was frost on the ground. She was charged with murder, but there doesn't seem to be any record of any trial. That is most likely due to her being sent to a Tennessee mental institution. But she was later released. She never remarried and died in 1972 at the age of 79 in rural Tennessee. Some point after this, Robert's father, Robert Sr., moved up to Oak Harbor, Washington, in the northwest part of Washington that is sort of broken up into these islands and so on. Now, Anna May, Robert's mother, had been married previously and had two daughters from that relationship. But that marriage ended, and she then married Robert Sr., who was known to be a solid man who worked hard. He was very religious and very polite. Together, they had Robert and then another daughter. 
Being that they were quite religious, they raised all four children as Seventh-day Adventists who believe in the second coming when Christ or Jesus will separate the saints from the wicked and start his 1,000-year kingdom. For them, the Sabbath is observed on Saturdays rather than Sundays. They also avoid meat, drugs, and alcohol. Now, many would describe the Yates family as your average, all-American, godly, and good people. So, Oak Harbor was once a very small, quiet community until the Navy came. The U.S. government purchased land from farmers near Crescent Harbor, Mailer Point, and Clover Valley and began building a naval seaplane base and airfield. It was one of these facilities that Robert Sr. would work at. Anna May was a hairdresser and also worked as a housekeeping supervisor at a local hospital. When Robert Jr. was born, there was a brand new drive-in theater and a roller skating facility built. However, as lovely as the area sounds, unfortunately, at just six years old, Robert was sexually assaulted by an older neighbor boy. But outside of that, there really isn't any record of him having any negative issues as a child. There is zero evidence that his parents abused or neglected him in any way whatsoever. His mother, Anna, felt it was important to teach her children to respect their elders, and her children very much did so. Robert was good to his parents in return, never giving them any trouble as a child. One local man in that area said, quote, If I raised kids, I'd like them to come up as good as him. He never used any profanity. You'd think you were talking to a professor. Unquote. It was noted, though, that Robert had a quote, unusual relationship with a dominating mother, unquote. But then that's all I found about that statement. There were no examples of why his mother was described in this way or why they believed this to be so. Robert and his family were again churchgoers and then someone burned down the Seventh-day Adventist church. Robert's father was terribly upset about this so his father and Robert Jr. helped rebuild the church. As Robert grew into a teen, he would, like the rest of the teenagers, cruise the local downtown strip and, you know, stop off at one of the fast food burger joints and hang out. He played sports during school and showed some talent for baseball as well as football. He was described by classmates as not thin, but not fat. He wasn't exceptionally tall, but he wasn't short either. He had brown hair that he combed into a side part and a powerful arm that could perfectly control a baseball. So when he began high school, sources say he just sort of floated through without making any real intimate connections. Many of the students and teachers from back then say they don't even really remember him. The few that do say that he was very quiet. He turned in his assignments when they were due, never disrupted class, never caused any problems. 
the only things he did that stood out at all was that he quit playing football his sophomore year. He read a poem in class, though, and everyone thought that it was perhaps, you know, Shakespeare or another famous poet, but Robert had actually written it. And it seemed whatever he put his mind to, his determination seemed intense. For example, he pushed himself impulsively. That was the word used, impulsively. If he wanted to get in a rowboat, let's say, and go around in the water, he would literally row for five miles. If he decided he wanted to go for a run, he would run 10 miles easily, if not more. He enjoyed hunting, fishing, and hiking. He mowed lawns for money and worked at a gas station when he was old enough. He he even worked on a farm harvesting peas, making $1.80 an hour. His senior year, he took up choir. At home, around the age of 16, his father said that he was kind of moody and aggressive, but he chalked it up to teenage hormones and really thought nothing of it. Finally, at 18 years old, Robert graduated from high school. So, you know, that was Robert's childhood, so let's get into it. After reading so many articles about young Robert Lee Yates, I realized that there was much to do about his paternal grandmother just sort of snapping and killing her husband. We have no explanation as to why she did this. You get the impression that it was out of the blue, that she had not premeditated her action or anything. She just, from all the accounts, woke up, wandered barefoot, out to the woodshed in the cold, tiptoed back into the house and hacked her husband in the head with an axe. And that very well might be true, of course. We have no way of knowing. Their children would have been in the house when this happened, but we don't know the motive, if there was one. Could he have been an abusive husband? Was he perhaps cheating? Was she driven by some need for revenge and punishment? Or was it truly as random as sources make it out to be? She did spend time in a mental facility rather than prison, so my guess would be that she suffered with something, but we just don't know what. We know that when Robert was six years old, he was sexually assaulted by an 11-year-old neighbor boy. The trauma experienced by children who are abused by other children or an adult is the same. Only when a child does it to another child, it is often unreported or adults just kind of blow it off, kids being kids. In this situation, both children need intervention and help. Being the victim of sexual abuse from an older child would have been traumatizing. I couldn't find anywhere where his parents got him counseling or did really anything for him after this happened. Robert Sr. did later acknowledge that he knew it happened and offered it as perhaps some explanation into his crimes that his son later committed. And then we have a couple of sources making the comment that Robert had an unusual relationship with his quote, domineering mother 
but gave no examples or stories as to why they came to that conclusion. Robert was a very well-behaved child who seemed to be very well taken care of. I see no abuse. I don't see him being beat into submission. He wasn't neglected or anything negative other than the sexual assault from the other child, which of course is super bad. His grandmother killed his grandfather, but this occurred long before he was even born. I don't know if he had really any level of contact with her once he was released as she died in Tennessee, where she had always lived. He was a well-rounded, responsible, and respectful child who was successful in school. So I'm just not seeing anything major here that would cause him to go on to do what he did. But let's get back into it. So in 1970, Robert enrolled at Skagit Valley Community College, very close to his home. An old friend of his stated that they spoke about perhaps becoming park rangers or game wardens. This same friend also said Robert, during this time, had stated that what bothered him most about his religious faith was that he was not allowed to eat pork and that he would like to be able to try pork ribs at a local buffet. But then Robert stated he had decided he wanted to be a doctor. His friend was drafted and went to war. Two years later, Robert earned an associate's degree. He also met and married a young woman by the name of Shirley Nylander. They both moved to Walla Walla, Washington and enrolled in Walla Walla College, which was a Seventh-day Adventist school. Robert enrolled as pre-med. Shirley's mother stated she had not really even had time to get to know him very well before her daughter married him. Robert also worked odd jobs and he went to class, but of course, no one remembered him when asked later. The only proof really was a single yearbook picture. At that time, most boys were wearing their hair longer, but not Robert. His clothes were neat and his hair cut short and was always combed immaculately. So then, suddenly, after only a year and a half of marriage, Shirley left Robert and moved back in with her parents, and two months after that, she filed for divorce. Why, do you ask? Well, friends, I didn't find the specific reason, but I dug around. He did move on, and rather quickly and actually. He did move on rather quickly and actually married another woman named Linda before his divorce was even finalized and they had their first child together exactly eight months after Shirley left him before the divorce. So if my math is correct, my guess would be that Shirley found out he had cheated on her, but it's speculation and you know it. Around this time, Robert dropped out of college before he earned his bachelor's degree. He and Linda's daughter was born in 1974. At this point, Robert was 22 years old. He got a job as a guard at the Walla Walla Penitentiary, 
where his wife's father had worked for 18 years. Robert lasted a whole four months. He then moved on and worked as a janitor at the same hospital his mother was the, you know, housekeeping supervisor of, but that didn't last very long either. He got a job as an usher at a movie theater, hated that as well. In 1975, he decided to take a gun and go shooting. You know, people do. He saw this young couple picnicking near Mill Creek and decided to use them as target practice. He shot the male three times in the head. He shot the female twice. He then discarded their bodies under some brush and they were discovered just days later. He also apparently got angry with a co-worker and smeared feces on this business door. In 1976, Robert and Linda had their second wedding ceremony due to the first one not being legal. And about two months after that, Robert's mother died after a long battle with cancer. Now, according to acquaintances, Robert didn't seem too terribly upset by her passing. Not long after their official marriage, Linda actually left him for a month. She had found out that Robert had actually drilled a hole in the attic wall so that he would be able to watch the couple in the neighboring apartment have sex. This year, Robert signed up for the army. At this point, he was 25 years old, which is considered older to be enlisting. But in the military, he flourished, seemed to have found his calling. He became a highly accomplished helicopter pilot and was stationed at Fort Rucker, Alabama, becoming a warrant officer. He was then stationed in Germany from 1980 to 1984, where he and Linda had another daughter. He was then sent back to Alabama. Now, Linda stated that while he was stationed in Alabama, she took the children and left him, moving back to Washington, and she said she loved the separation. But her daughters were begging to go back and be with their father. So eventually she gave in and went back. His fellow soldiers said that he was liked, but people didn't know him very well. He was described as quiet, and when they would be, you know, all making decisions, work-related decisions, Robert would be that guy to say, quote, I think there might be a better way, unquote. He was also described as methodical and very, very patient. Then in 1988, while visiting family, he lured a prostitute to go with him, then shot her once in the head, killing her. The next year, his son was born and Robert became a helicopter flight instructor. So when Hurricane Andrew blew through the Bahamas and Louisiana in 1992, he was actually an important player in the relief efforts. But also by 1992, he had shot and murdered a further four prostitutes. Linda later stated, quote, My husband's military colleagues always seemed surprised that he had a wife. 
When we would go to parties together, he would drink heavily, moon other women, and say that his name was James Bond 007, unquote. He would go on to kill another prostitute in Alabama. He did have sex with him, yes, whom had been dressed as a female, then shot him twice in the face. Robert then dumped his body on the side of the road. In 1996, the now 44-year-old Robert, having earned several impressive medals and serving 20 years in the military, filed for retirement. It is said that this is most likely due to the fact that the authorities were sort of closing in on that base that he was stationed at for the murder of the boy. So Robert left the U.S. Army with an honorable discharge. Immediately after, he moved his wife and children from Alabama to Spokane, Washington. By April of that year, he had rented his house, he had five children with his wife, he was making about 40% of his normal pay and had no job for several months after. Linda said, quote, I had hoped that coming home to Washington would help the marriage, but it really didn't. The romance was gone, but I felt guilty about splitting up the family. The kids loved their dad, and I just kind of suffered through it. I didn't love him like a wife should. He killed that. Unquote. Not long after, one of his older daughters found an address book in his lunchbox, and just before that, Linda had found some motel receipts with women's names on them. Robert told her that he had been trying to find car parts. That was his excuse, which I would not fall for. It makes no sense to me, but whatever. Then after another prostitute was found shot in the head, Linda walks up to Robert, right, and sees that he's cleaning blood out of their van. She's like, what's this? And he says, well, I hit a dog and it died while I was trying to take it to the vet. And really him cleaning his vehicles was no surprise to his neighbors. They joked that if they left their car parked outside, he might even wash theirs as well. So Robert kind of missed the military life and he joined the National Guard in 97 and got a job at a factory but his medical evaluations were delayed for whatever reason, meaning he could not be actively flying for the National Guard. During this time, he solicited the services of two other prostitutes, then shot them in the head. His body count would explode this year. He began favoring putting like two or three put together plastic bags over the victim's head before shooting them. The experts call that a calling card. It very well could be. I think it might be sort of a avoiding the mess type situation, but regardless. He owned a white Corvette at the time and was actually pulled over twice for traffic violations near an area where the prostitutes were disappearing, but he wasn't connected to the murders, even though one of the girls was last seen in a white sports car. It was at this time that the authorities began to believe that they indeed had a serial killer on the loose. 
Then Robert bought a house for his family just as his oldest daughter was old enough to move out. By the next year, he was laid off from his factory job as were many others during a company downsizing. It wasn't actually performance related because everyone said he was an excellent worker. So in November of 1998, Robert hired the services of a prostitute but was pulled over. He told the officer that the girl was a friend of his daughter's and he was just driving her home. Two days later, his middle child, Amber, walked into the local police station where she told them that her father was physically abusing her. She said that he hit her all the time, slapping her in the face repeatedly. He was charged with misdemeanor assault. And still, the decomposing bodies of prostitutes kept being discovered. Robert was beginning to lose control. His cool, calm demeanor beginning to slip. As there was picketing outside of his next job, he crossed the picketing line to go inside, but would overstep his boundaries with co-workers. In March of 1999, he tried to get a job flying helicopters for the air ambulance service, but they just weren't hiring at that time. So then another prostitute went missing. By now, the authorities began to piece the puzzle together and had a list of suspects. Robert was squarely on that list. They brought him in for questioning and they said he was sweating profusely and again said that the girl in his car back when he had been stopped was actually not a prostitute, that she had been a friend of his daughter's, but no, I can't seem to remember her name. When they asked him for a blood sample for a DNA test, he refused. They eventually found the girl that he claimed to be his daughter's friend, right? And she said that Robert had agreed to pay her $20 for some oral. She said that he also liked smoking crack and paid for her heroin. Since Robert had sold his Corvette the year before, the police tracked down the vehicle got permission from the new owner to collect carpet fibers and sent them for testing. Those fibers matched fibers found on evidence from one of the crime scenes. They also found a button in the car that matched buttons on the clothing of another victim. They also found old dried up blood in the car as well. On April 18, 1999, while driving to work, Robert was arrested for the murders of the victims they linked to the Corvette evidence to. Other prostitutes came forward, stating that they were completely shocked that Robert had actually been the killer. Many said he was very sweet and passionate with them, was always kind, never aggressive, a couple admitted actually having little crushes on him and would never have thought of him as dangerous. But another said behind his eyes, there was nothing. It became known that he had stashed at least one body at his own home for a time because vegetation from his residence was found on a body. Robert eventually pled guilty to 13 counts of murder and was spared the death penalty. 
He was sentenced to 408 years in prison in Spokane, and he is still in prison today. So, guys, again, I have a hard time believing that he became a serial killer because he inherited the inclination from his father's mother. His grandmother, as far as I could find, had no prior violent issues in her life. A few sources wanted to say that his mother was domineering, but then gave us absolutely no examples of why she was described that way. He didn't suffer any head injuries, no abuse, neglect, none of that, nothing. So what went wrong? What do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or on YouTube under the same name as this podcast. Consider becoming a sponsor so that I may someday be able to bring more podcasts more often. And thanks always for listening. I appreciate every one of you. You know this. I love you guys. Have a great day.